ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene, he kona i pirangi tene, e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today, we are joined by the wonderful Jenny Christie. Kia ora, Jenny. Kia ora, Erica. Ko Jenny Christie. Toku ingoa. It is so wonderful to have you here. I've been far too excited about doing this particular episode. So for everyone at home, can you just tell me a bit about what your role at DOC is? So I'm a science advisor for the Department of Conservation and uh, my responsibility is looking after climate change, adaptation, science. Uh, What sort of work is the department doing in that area? Fascinating. And how did you get started in this field? Well, I've worked for the Department of Conservation for quite some time now, and um, originally I worked on small mammal pest research, and um, when climate change uh, came back into the headlines, I think about 2006, we started to get quite concerned then about what the risks would be for our native species, and so um, it morphed from small mammal pests into, well, how could these small mammal pests, which are the invasives like mice and shiprats and stoats, get worse with climate change? Um, And it just went from there. So how does climate change affect these small mammalian pests? We know from um, anecdotal records that uh, things like shiprats, um, there's evidence that they may be limited by a midwinter temperature isotherm and... um, And so while we don't have um, specific evidence at the moment, there's certainly that risk is there. More of them could survive the winter, and that means when it comes into a mast year, which is a year when the seed, like in beech forest, um, has a mass seeding event, there's more more numbers for them to go into a predator eruption. It's also species like uh, hedgehogs traditionally hibernate during the winter. They could get a lot worse if the temperatures get warmer over the winter. They could have more young, the young could survive, they could colonise greater areas than where they are currently. Mm. And it's also going um, out of that small mammal invasive pest into species like rabbits, which are now able to breed year round in all parts of New Zealand, I think, whereas in the past they couldn't. So it's it's subtle changes like that. So it's them stopping production through winter and then actually they're not doing that so much anymore and yeah. they can even almost breed through winter yeah. sometimes. And that gives them a huge, huge advantage in terms of numbers. Absolutely. And uh, when you're managing invasive pests, it's all about managing those numbers. Less is better, obviously. And uh, so if they're going to be more of them and over a a greater part of the countryside, then, then that's a problem. That's a major problem, especially when our native species are already suffering through winter. They're doing what they can to survive through winter. And then you've got hungry winter rats coming at them. Yeah, that's exactly. no fun. So how do you explain the difference between weather and the climate? 
Well, weather is what you see outside your window now, um, or what if you're outside now, it's what you're experiencing now, weather is now, whereas climate is the long-term average of now. It kind of smooths that out, if you like, and it takes into account the extremes, like the big storm in, in Southland recently, that's an extreme, and all of that gets munched up into those that long-term climate average. So climate change is the shifting of that long-term climate average. So while one or two degrees might not sound like much mm. because you're shifting the whole range. It's mm. it's a lot. Definitely. So weather's what we're seeing at the moment and climate's what we expect yep. almost. Yep. It's, that, yep. it's a long-term average. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. So part of your work, I know, is focusing on the how the department will need to adapt what it does to mitigate the effects of climate change. Can you tell me about that? What are the key elements there? What does that mean? So um, there's two types of climate change work. There's adaptation and there's mitigation. And adaptation is the side that I work on. It's like saying climate change is happening. So how do we change what we do uh, to manage these impacts, to reduce these impacts? It's things like, uh, if we use a predator control example I just used, it's like, okay, what extra um, invasive pest control do we need to do to deal with increased invasive predators? But mitigation in comparison, that is, you know, that's that's planting trees to store carbon. That's reducing the amount of carbon we're actually emitting into the atmosphere. It's um, using an electric bike instead of driving to work in your petrol vehicle. It's it's those sorts of things. Okay. And mitigation's making it less severe. It's just working on those effects. Yeah. 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 And, and both are both are really important. So your role must encompass a whole bunch of different things. No one day is the same. Do you have a weirdest day at work sort of story? I have plenty of weirdest days at work sort of stories, but probably the one that's most relevant to to hear is that um, one day in, I was in Wellington and um, I was at a meeting about uh, climate change and how can we measure the effect it will have on New Zealanders' well-being. And one of the things that came up was um, about burning coal and how bad it was and how we could stop burning coal, which was quite an interesting conversation. And then the following week, I found myself um, in Arthur's Pass in the field and a really big storm came through and we got stuck um, on one side of the river. We had somewhere nice and safe to stay. Um, then it started to snow and it was very cold and I found myself shoveling coal into the pot belly <laughs> when a week earlier I'd been at a meeting saying how bad this Don't was. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's like when people were cold, they'll, they'll shovel coal. It was That's like... you have to do. You're yeah. sort of looking back on yourself going, yep, I, yeah. I know, I know, I am the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the whole problem with climate change is that, yeah, people make decisions yep. in the moment and right. um, we were cold and yeah. it was cold and you don't yeah. want to get pneumonia yeah, yeah. so um, yeah so I guess there'll always be exceptions to the rule in terms of yes we try and do it particularly one way but if you're stuck and it snows you in then needs must it is kind of that sort of situation isn't it it's exactly that sort of situation mm-hmm. and, and people have to make those decisions all the time that's right and um, they, they have to do what's best for them that's right I'm really interested in what climate change is already doing to native species. What can we currently see happening? 
what we're starting to see is, and a lot of it's anecdotal and we haven't got the scientific research to back it up, but we're starting to see things like uh, the snails in northwest Nelson and dry conditions. The ground gets really hard and they uh, start to die and suffer. Uh, and up north, Kiwi as well. If, mm-hmm. the, if there's a dra- there's a drought up there at the moment, the ground's really hard, and the Kiwi struggle to get their beaks into that hard ground. Sure. And um, that's probably the the most um, topical one at the moment. But it, it's also things like our native fish species in alpine areas. Mm-hmm. There's a alpine galaxis in the Manaherakia. It lives in a few small streams up there, and they are temperature limited to below 12 degrees, I think it is. And I think last year the summer was so hot that the waterways were up to 13 or 14 degrees. And so it's like, well, how are these species surviving in, in that catchment? And so it's it's all sorts of things mm-hmm. like that. It's our, um, it's Tuatara. They've got uh, temperature sex determination. So if their eggs get too warm, then... Are we going to have a lot of male to Atara? It's, uh, it's, yeah, it will affect them in a large number of ways and in ways that we haven't thought of. Sure. Is that that um, thing where it's about one degree difference for that male to female egg in Tuataras and that could be a functionally extinct population just like that? Uh, I, I must admit I'm not sure, Erica, because um, one of the things about being the um, climate change science expert for the department is that I I have a overview of a whole lot of stuff and so yeah it's it's tricky in that way so I'm not sure of the exact <laughs> degree difference but but what you're saying is conceptually right. Yeah, I yeah. think you know quite a lot Jenny. <laughs> um, also on the on the Kiwi thing I heard that a Northern office was uh, receiving about 20 phone calls an hour recently about Kiwi that were in distress needing help out in the, out of the forest during the day. And they were saying how it could mean that there are more Kiwi and it could also mean that people are becoming more aware of these, that, you know, it's great that you're seeing a Kiwi, that's really exciting, not many people get to, but they're also realising the stress that that's, that's causing. So yeah. that could be a, a social change, things are happening. I, I think it's a really good thing that people... It's not a good thing that it's happening, but mm. it's a good thing that people are aware of yeah. it and seeing that and Absolutely. seeing that actually um, the native species that we care about sure. uh, are coming under um, impact from our, our warmer, droughtier conditions. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think that's that's one good thing that we can take out sure. of this. We're seeing it in our backyard does yep. make it really sends it home, doesn't it? Yeah, and, it, and for people it feels like their backyard... Which Definitely, is yeah. Right, we are Kiwis. We yeah. want that too. Yeah, and um, in in future, what impacts do we expect to see sort of later, later down the track? I think it'll be a continuation of what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be hard to predict what some of those impacts will be, of and course. often it's really tricky because uh, you can't see them till you're beyond them and look back. Um, that's especially for things like big. Uh, tipping points uh, where like a uh, forest uh, might might be affected by a drought and start dying you won't see it till after the drought mm-hmm. and um, it's, it's very hard to know what to do in situations like like that like yeah. that's a that's a massive change Absolutely. to the ecosystem yeah or, or like in the alpine zone where rock wren are running out of space where they're having to go higher and higher 
and then what happens? That could be a tipping point. Oh, they suddenly have no habitat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's the diminishing real estate um, issue there. Sure. Yeah, obviously yeah. as you get to the top of the mountain, things mm. get narrower and narrow, narrower and um, you just run out of space. Yeah. Let's hope it doesn't come to that, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it won't. (laughs) So I know that in your early days, you encountered a lot of disbelief around climate change, um, that topic. Do you you still get that? And if so, what do you say to people? Yeah, I did get that in in early days. And I'd like to say that that's changed a lot. I don't actually hear that that often from people that, um, that... how do I know climate change is real and how do I know it's human induced? And but um but my answer is is always, well, in the Department of Conservation, our job is to protect our native species from threats and pressures like and climate change is one of those pressures. Mm. So we have to manage for that risk. Um, and so in, in some ways it's irrelevant whether it's real, whether it's um, whether it's human induced or not. But I would like to say that the evidence is pretty overwhelming that it is. And yeah, we need to manage that um, irrelevant of that because it would look pretty stupid in about 45 years um, or even now if we were saying, oh, no, this isn't real, we're not going to do anything about it. If we started losing species because... And then we went, oh, it is real. Oh, that that would be pretty um, yeah. silly. Let's not get to that stage. Yeah. And there was a time you were um, sort of confronted by this um, on an aeroplane. Can you tell us about that story? Oh, yeah. I was um, sitting next to someone who was a, a Baptist minister, and we were having a good conversation about what he did for a job and what I did for a job. So obviously climate change came up. And um, he asked me about whether I thought climate change was was actually real. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting question from a Baptist minister. But I replied to him my usual response, which is, it's, it's kind of irrelevant whether it's real or not, because we manage risk at the Department of Conservation and climate change is a risk to native species and to ecosystems. And so we have to manage it whether it's occurring or not. We have to manage it whether it's human-induced or not. Um, but I will say, and I did say to him, that the evidence is pretty um, unequivocal these days that it is happening and it is human-induced. Um, yeah. That must have been an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, I um, I reflected upon it afterwards and I found <laughs> it quite amusing. Yeah, how about that? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me about a time when you've been incredibly inspired by a colleague? Um, well, that's really tricky, actually, Erica, because I feel like um, I've been inspired a little bit by a lot of my colleagues um, on, a, on a vast range of things to how they deal with uh, challenging conservation issues, to um, to communicating the, the message and influencing the decisions that are made uh, uh, to staying calm in tricky situations, mm. to being able to do a huge breadth of uh, of of work, which is what's required for um, science advisors in the Department of Conservation. And often I feel inspired every day, actually, by my colleagues. It's yeah. it's one of the things I really enjoy about working for the Department of Conservation. I absolutely agree with you. As soon as I started, it was just meeting these incredibly passionate scientists, experts. It's 
every day there's something that they're really passionate about and, yeah, very cool. So TASIC mast monitoring is something that I'm really interested in. Can you can you tell us a bit about how, because it's got some really crucial conservation development in it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, for um, being able to see what or how climate change is impacting on our native species um, in terms of phenology, so that's the flowering of mm. native plants, um, that we've got some old... About say old fashioned techniques. We've got some old fashioned techniques, um, which are, you know, we actually go out there in the field and we count things. And so for t- tussocks, uh, at the moment, if you want to know if it's a, a mast year, which is where they're flowering on mass, or a, a not mast year, then you go out and you count, say, 100 tussocks on an annual basis, and you you count the number of tillers they've got and you count the number of flower heads they've got. And that's incredibly time-consuming, that's as intensive. you can, can imagine, and involves crawling around on the ground <laughs> and um, getting your hands really cut up because Ooh. it's there's silica in the tussock, so it um, cuts, your, cuts your fingers. Oh, that's what cuts your fingers when you grab a tussock or something. Yeah, and it's, yeah, yeah, like a yeah, paper cut, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So imagine doing a hundred tussocks. No, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, and um, so we're getting and and that's really localized as well. So uh, that sort of information. So for climate change, we need actually lots of information, and we need it um, big scale. So monitoring is really important. But um, but fortunately, this is where technology is really helping us out and there's this new tool or relatively new tool called remote sensing and what it is is when uh, images are taken from either a drone Mm. or a fixed wing plane or a satellite and those images are a certain resolution so that's like their their scale if you like Mm. Um, and uh, and then they uh, they have multi-spectra in them so they have the the colours you can see, which are red, green, blue, that's mm. what you and I can see, but they also have um, other colours that we can't see, so they're in the infrared light bands. And um, so it, everything's got more colour than what we can see. And so what we've been doing with tussock, uh, we've got a study site, we're looking at red tussock because it's there's more of a um, colour change there, and we're looking at can we tell from these multispectral images uh, between a mast year and a non-mast year, and so we've, and with with the naked eye, you can see that um, it looks in a in a mast year, the tussock flowers are, it looks paler when you look at the tussock because it's like a field of wheat, and you know it's all these flowers, and it looks a lot paler. But what we mm-hmm. don't know is if that's just a texture difference that our eyes are picking up because our eyes are really sophisticated. Oh or if it's a colour difference. So, uh, But we've gone out there, we've taken pictures in a non-mast year, in a mast year, and it looks like with f- other fancy computer software, we can tell on a colour spectra there is a shift. So, um, so tools like that are ex- extremely important, and there's similar work going on with uh, beach forest. Can we tell when it when it's flowering um, and, and when it starts flowering, which is information we've never had before, um, and that's that. That work is ongoing as well, and um, so that that's a huge leap forward in terms of tools that we've got. Because obviously, 
if you can take a picture, the computer will do some stuff and pop out and say, yes, last year. It's, it's a lot quicker than going out there and... Getting your hands cut up. Getting your hands cut up. Yeah, so it's it doesn't fully replace the old counting thing because mm-hmm. there'll be years in the middle where there'll be... it'll It won't quite mask. There'll be some flowers, but it's... It, it's a huge step forward. Absolutely. I, I just saw that um, computer program you were talking about this morning in terms of uh, a black-billed gull colony and the way they were zooming in and, and what they were going to be able to tell is there are 10,000 gulls, 10,067 gulls in that colony. It's fascinating. It's amazing. It's incredible efficiency build. Yeah. Very cool. So some experts have said that the biggest roadblocks to climate change action are the social barriers that we have, like it's too confronting, I'd have to give up my way of life. Is this something that you see in your work as well? Yes, it is, but I see it in a different way. Um, The department has got a tremendous amount of work that we need to do to protect our native species um, from the various threats they've got. And so so it's hard to add something else onto that because we've already got more work than what it feels we can do mm. um, in that area. But it's it's still still crucial. So for me, it was about getting traction on this on this work it was really hard mm. uh, for a, for a long time. In a lot of ways, the department is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but climate change is actually at the top of the cliff, and um, eventually we'll get to the bottom. But mm. there's some stuff we need to be working on now, and it was getting that that message through. And I feel we've certainly moved into that space now. Uh, there's been a big shift in people's thinking worldwide mm. that climate change is happening and we need to do something. And, and that has been hugely beneficial. And so for the last year... I've spent it uh, developing a what is a draft climate change adaptation action plan. So this is how how do we manage this in the department? What sort of actions do we need to be doing? And it's a very uh, practical plan because we really need this to work. We we need this to happen. Um, so I've experienced that in the past, but now moving to actually being able to address this issue. Fantastic. Because you were you were doing talks on climate change 11 years ago, weren't you? Yeah, I was, So yes. the room's changed quite a bit. Yes, it has. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. yes. That's, that's hopeful. Yeah, no one was a denier, but it was, this is just one more thing. Yeah. Except and, for that one guy on the plane. <laughs> yeah, except for the one guy on the plane. <laughs> so on that topic, climate change can make us all feel a bit helpless. It's, you know, sometimes you do just want to sit, lie in bed with your duvet over your head. There is that sort of ecological grief that goes with it. How do you, how do you keep your chin up? Um, Well, I think it's important to realise that we've actually got hope. Uh, There's, there's a lot of hope. There's actually things we can do. We, we can't manage climate, Mm. um, unfortunately, apart from mitigating by not driving our cars and stuff like that. But that's a huge collective thing. And it's important that everyone does what they can to, uh, to stop burning carbon. But from an actual climate change adaptation viewpoint, you know, we can't manage the climate. But thinking, going back to the example of the snails in the forest and the mm. kiwi in the forest, the ground's really dry um, and there's, there's forest dieback occurring as well or potentially occurring. Um, what do we do about that? You know, we can't stop a forest dying back. 
what we can do is actually we can we can control browsing herbivores, and that's things like um, deer mm-hmm. and goats and um, and possums, and those are the things that eat our native forest, yeah. and they um, and so if a, a forest died or bits of the forest died, controlling those would actually mean that another forest could regenerate underneath. Mm-hmm. And it also means that the, if we can control them, then the undergrowth should thicken up. And if the undergrowth thickens up, then it shades the ground. And then if the ground is shaded, it's just damper. Mm-hmm. And so things like kiwi can get their beacon um, and, and snails can um, thrive more mm-hmm. easily. Uh, and it's also about thinking creatively about how we can adapt to these things. Mm-hmm. And I know some of my colleagues have been working on, you know, this short in places where there isn't wide, wide, wide scale herbivore control. You know, can they do little fenced off areas for things like uh, uh, poelephanta, which is their native snail, or for our native frogs? And so these these species, native species have quite a small range. So a series of small fenced off plots to keep the herbivores out can make a massive difference for them. Sure, like almost like a Band-Aid. So while we're figuring everything out, yeah. it's like a... It's yeah, it a is. temporary. Yeah, it's a band aid. Okay, yeah, cool. it is. So it's 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 um it's solutions like that. It's mm-hmm. about it's about thinking creatively to yeah. solve the problem. And it's that building of the ecological resilience that we're aiming to do, isn't it? It is that kind of thing. Yeah, we're trying to build ecological resilience. Sure. And we won't be able to save everything. Um, and we won't be able to predict what might happen. But it's really important that we try. Absolutely, I think. Um, John Merton in like 1981, someone was saying there are only seven black robin left and they're all a bit genetically messed up. Um, <laughs> is there much point? And he said he'd rather have seven messed up black robin than none at all. And it's that kind of that kind of thing that I think pushes us forward, isn't it? It is. You look for that opportunity. It's never, never lost hope. It's never lost hope. Mm. And it's often not perfect. And I feel that's what working in conservation is like. Is it's often not perfect, but... We've got to try, and, and there's there's always hope. Definitely. Um, and what can listeners do at home? How can someone sitting on the couch stop climate change right now? I think for climate change, it's thinking about what small thing can I do that mm-hmm. might make a difference. And and it's not changing their life um, open slather, because we all know that that's really hard um, to do that in one go. But it's Mm -hmm. about thinking, okay, maybe I will bike to work um, one day a week, or Mm -hmm. maybe I will, um, maybe I'll catch the bus. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I'll, you know, I'll have one less red meat meal a week. It's it's little things like that. It's, it's, it's those things. And, um, and because it is really a collective collective change that's needed to happen. Definitely. And almost making it the social norm as well. That yeah. will definitely help. Yeah, it will. It'll make it'll make it socially acceptable mm. and it will mean that people um yeah, they feel like they have to do it. Or <laughs> I don't know if that's they feel like they have to. But <laughs> social social pressure is a huge mechanism for getting people to change Very much what so. they do. If they see their neighbours doing it, if mm. they see people they they like or inspire them doing it. Well, it's then... like the, the plastic bag ban when all these different groups were doing it and then um, eventually it got into legislation. So what's something about your work that you do that you wish everybody knew? Well, what I wish 
everyone knew was that um, that climate change is going to affect everything that we do. Biodiversity is probably my speciality area, but thinking about the department more more widely, it's going to affect uh, the tourism work we do, it's going to affect our infrastructure, mm-hmm. it's going to affect risks to visitors, um, and there's an example of that. Recently, there's been a few more extreme storms uh, in Fiordland in the West Coast, um, with uh, huts being damaged, uh, roads being damaged, bridges washed away. And um, so that that really changes things. And and if you look wider than the Department of Conservation as well, it's going to affect all of New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, all all parts of all parts of the government. Everything we do uh, is is going to be affected by it. Yeah, I remember you saying, um, you know, not always statistics can get through to people, but what people really want to know is, can I take my kid to the beach? Yeah. It's- yeah, yeah, it's 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 that. It's um yeah, people want to know, can I take my kid to the beach? Can I go camping at um at Totranui mm-hmm. every year like I have with my friends and family? Can I go tramping on the Heafy track? Um it, it's 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 stuff like that yeah. and that's that's really important to New Zealanders mm-hmm. and it's important to the Department of Conservation. Yeah. That's our livelihood, isn't it? It's how we live as Kiwis. Um yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. You are most interesting person award. I always get a little bit excited to talk to you about everything and anything. So thank you so much for talking to us, Jenny. Oh, well, thanks, Erica. It's been a really enjoyable way to spend my morning. One of the different ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks, Jenny. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now, never miss an episode.